No, I was always very gung-ho about it, uh, like 100%. Bluegrass, bluegrass, you know, banjo, banjo. Extremely, I was just into it. Greetings, everybody. It's Keith Billick here with the Picky Fingers podcast. I am coming to you from my famous backyard suburban Detroit recording studio, also known as underneath a pop-up tent in my backyard. So as if my soothing voice is not enough for you, perhaps uh, the added traffic sounds of 8 Mile Road will will bring that little extra uh, comfort and serenity to your day. Uh, either way, I'm really happy to have you tuning in. And before we get started, just a little news from Picky Fingers HQ. Uh, I hope to see some of you down at IBMA in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's the last week of September. As I have been doing the last couple years, I will have an exhibit hall booth along with my good pal Daniel Patrick of the Mandolins and Beer podcast. Come say hi. Come buy a t-shirt. Come uh, pick a tune. I'll have my banjo there, of course. And uh, it's always good to put some names with faces and, and to meet some new listeners, meet some old listeners. Uh, yeah, IBMA, look me up. Uh, I'll also be teaching at the Great Lakes Music Camp alongside uh, Bill Evans and Evie Layden, some podcast alumni there. So that's always a great time. Head over to greatlakesmusic.org to check out how to sign up for that one. Speaking of buying t-shirts, if you are hearing this right when it comes out, you have approximately 48 hours left of the 23% off clearance sale at banjopodcast.com. That's on all official Picky Fingers merch. And, uh, you know, so that's the t-shirts, the stickers, the audio tracks of the theme music with banjo tablature. All you have to do is put summer 23 into the coupon code and you'll get 23% off your order. That's now until the end of August. But uh, being a clearance sale, that does also mean that I will be restocking merch very soon. So if you don't see something you want, maybe check back in a few weeks and I'm expecting more of that. As always, it's time to thank our VIP, very important picker of the show. Today, that's Stephen B. Register Jr. Stephen has generously signed up on the Patreon site to uh, throw me a few dollars a month to keep this banjo podcast going, and it is very generous and very appreciated. So, Stephen Register Jr., thank you so much for your support. Uh, everyone else, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. That's how you become a vip supporter of the show you get some great rewards in return along with the satisfaction of knowing that you are helping spread the banjo awareness worldwide you can also contact me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast.com with all of your questions complaints concerns Today's featured guest is Casey Henry. 
Casey is well known for her educational resources as the, I, I guess I'll call her the heir to the Murphy Method throne. Uh, so she's been involved in that almost literally her whole life. But she's also played professionally with such bands as Uncle Earl, the Dixie Beeliners. She's released a solo album and recorded an album with her brother, Chris Henry, under Casey and Chris and the Two Stringers. So she's a fantastic, mostly Scruggs-style player and has some great perspectives on how to properly learn that style and lots of other insight based on her many years of playing and teaching. And of course, she is the daughter of Murphy Henry, who, uh, who you heard from a few episodes ago. So this was once again recorded in the Murphy Method compound, uh, where they very graciously welcomed me in. So I appreciated that, and I appreciate you listening. And how about we put our hands together and give a warm picky fingers welcome to Casey Henry. The part of my story that people are probably familiar with is that uh, my parents play bluegrass, Red and Murphy Henry, of course, and uh, my mom is the banjo player there. So bluegrass was always around, right? When when uh, uh, my brother and I were little, I heard it in utero, um, you know, <laughs> so it definitely right. was there from the very beginning. So the sounds were always uh, you know, sinking into my brain. You had that direct resonator to belly connection. Exactly. And, yeah. Right into my developing, you know, nervous system. <laughs> so um, I'm sure that probably had something to do with it. Yeah, for better um, or worse. Yeah. <laughs> and and the stuff was always around the house, you know, the instruments, they were just around. Now we, um, as kids, weren't around when my parents were actually playing gigs, because of course we, I mean, you don't take your kids to work with you. You're not going to take your kid, you know. Yeah, you can't watch to, them to, when you're performing. Right. Exactly. So we, you know, we were at babysitter, so we didn't actually see the the thing happening. Um, but my parents had picking parties, you know, and, and it was kind of around and my mom always went off to teach uh, banjo lessons. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember her being gone to do that. Um, so I wasn't like, I do know that I'd learned like my banjo rolls when I was like five, maybe. Um, I think competition has always been a big motivator for me. And apparently... Like, I remember reading this in one of Murphy's columns. I don't m remember this with my brain, but she was starting another little kid on banjo who was, you know, small, maybe my age -ish. Similar age, yeah. Yeah, and apparently I saw that and then wanted to do, okay. to do it, you know. So, But I don't, didn't get any further than, like, forward, backward, you know, square maybe. I, I don't even know, but so it was in there a little bit. And um, the next musical thing that I did, well, I, I played a little ukulele when I was little, because that, you know, that's just so easy and fun yeah. and around. Um, the non-intimidating instrument. Maybe. Yeah. It was just so, you know, and they have them in fun colors or whatever. Right. Um, and then I played, I took piano lessons in school so that I did get, did get a bit of uh, like music reading uh, foundation. And then uh, in middle school, I joined the school band. So I played flute and piccolo. Um, all, all that was still, I only, I only lasted a couple of years in piano lessons. I didn't like my teacher that much. And so I, so I was big, I was a band nerd basically through yeah. high school, but I didn't start playing. So the first bluegrass instrument was really bass. And I think that was because my brother actually had take, was taking up mandolin, right. I guess. So he had, you know, this bluegrass thing. And uh, my parents always were really, they never made us, you know, play music or learn any instruments. Uh, it was never mandated, but whenever we showed the slightest bit of interest in 
anything music related. They were like, drop everything they were doing and like show us what we wanted yeah. right that second, you know? So it was very uh, encouraged. So he was doing mandolin so that he had this thing that he could do with them that got him attention from my parents, you know, like. And is Chris a younger brother? He's three years younger. Okay. Yeah. I thought so. I wasn't sure. And so I was like, oh man, I need something that I can do to like be a part of this thing. <laughs> I guess. And bass was not taken. A, okay, so it's kind of easy. It's like, Missy Rain said one time, there's only four strings and they're huge. Right. You know, so <laughs> it's easy in that respect. Um, if you have a decent sense of rhythm and can, can kind of hear your chord changes, it actually is pretty easy to pick up. And, and nobody in my family played it. Like, yeah. Of course, my mom was playing banjo. My dad was either mandolin or guitar, depending on who else they had playing with them. Um, and the bass was not taken. Yeah. Um, so when I was about 12, I started out on bass and... Eventually, my brother and I got uh, proficient enough on our instruments that we could uh, be the band for, you know, the Red and Murphy Band, at which point the name changed to uh, Red and Murphy and Their Excellent Children, a name which we're never going to live down, ever. <laughs> well, it's better than what what other adjectives they might have used for you, so just <laughs> well, take it. True, true. So I was really playing bass, um, you know, as the bass player in their band before I ever took up banjo, like, seriously. Um, so... I would say 14, I started being the bass player with the band. And then it wasn't until I was 15 that I started playing banjo seriously. So, you know, even as a bass player, we were going to festivals, we were playing, and it still wasn't really, like, that interested in banjo specifically yeah. um, until we went to um, Spigma. Okay. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever been to Spigma, which is a pretty overwhelming experience. Um, you know, walking into the lobby of the Sheraton, it's like... Sound, right. sound, you know, coming yeah. at you from everywhere. So the Murphy Method had a booth in the in the exhibit hall. So we were kind of there. And at some point during the weekend, um, I was making the rounds, looking at the booths, and little Roy Lewis was in the Stelling booth, and he was playing. You know, he was doing his, doing his thing. thing. He was doing his yeah. thing, maybe playing with Jeff, like maybe they were playing banjos or something. And um, everybody was like gathered around, you know, watching, because yeah. how can you not watch little Roy Lewis when he's doing his thing, right? And I was like wow, that's really cool, you know, that he's getting a lot of attention. Uh -huh. I want that much attention. You don't get that much attention as a bass player. Right. Unnamed bass player being the, you know, it's a cliche for a reason. Yeah, you um, stand in the back. You Yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, so for whatever reason, it was at that moment that I describe it as my banjo switch turned on. You know, like, like it, was, it was just right then. And I said, okay, I'm going to play the banjo. And so I went back home and dug out the... uh you know, beginning banjo volume one, which was on VHS at that of course, time, it yeah. pop, popped in the VHS. And at some point I had acquired Banjo in the Hollow, I think, and Cripple Creek, uh, maybe or at, at a slightly earlier age. When I had attempted it earlier, I got as far. So, so the Murphy Method starts with Banjo in the Hollow, Cripple Creek. And then uh, initially the third song was Cumberland Gap. And the first time I started to learn banjo, I got as far as Cumberland Gap. And you know where you have to stick out your little finger? I was like, oh, that's too hard. <laughs> and I quit. <laughs> so I have a lot of sympathy for my students who, when they get to Cumber the high break for Cumberland Gap, who complain that it's hard. Because it is hard to get your little finger to behave. You yeah. know, it, it's not a thing that little fingers are used to doing, sticking yeah. up. A little bit of like a stretch, that. yeah. Exactly. So I have tons of sympathy for that because I had already quit once over it. 
Mm-hmm. But this at age 15, I was ready, and I just blazed through everything that was on VHS at the time and went back and got the stuff off cassette that hadn't made it to video at the time. So this would have been early 90s. I was in 10th grade, so like 92, 93. I got basically everything that was available on the instructional materials at the time. And and then Murphy, um, we didn't sit down for many lessons really, but it was the thing where like uh, she would come home from teaching or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, listen to these two songs that I learned today. And I didn't realize uh, until, you know, later on being a teacher myself, how extraordinary that is. Not to sound full of myself, but like to have a student like absorb that much material that quickly and actually be able to play two songs that they learned in one day, you know. Yeah, often you're on the one song for weeks, maybe. Yeah, you know, a a song a month is usually what I just, you know, and and once you get into the more, the harder stuff, it can be way more than that per song. Yeah. Um, so, So I didn't really understand until I had a student do that myself and I saw it coming back to right. me and he like he would go off for a week and said have like three or four songs that he learned I'm like wow now I know what my mom was talking about how it was just so wild to have somebody do that yeah that's great let me back you up to the little Roy thing you you said part of your attraction to it was um how much attention he was you saw him getting you know the crowd gathered round and and anybody who knows how he performs you you know why he attracts that he's he's very flamboyant in a way i guess is the word i'll i'll use you don't strike me as being like an overly flamboyant person you don't seem to do this out of a need for like attention or compliments or whatever so i'm wondering if if that was really it or if there was just something else that clicked for you about hearing him play or um I don't know it's hard to say I mean I think I mean certainly a lot of it is just a love for the sound of bluegrass and and banjo specifically bass wasn't really fulfilling me either musically or you know attention wise or whatever yeah. uh, or maybe I just you know wanted to be able to play a lead instrument that you know bass is such a such a supporting role um in bluegrass especially but you know when I was a bass player I mean, not that I'm not still a bass player. I do still play bass from time to time. But yeah. um, when that was all I was doing, I wasn't really, I didn't listen to bluegrass, right? Like I was around it, it was happening, okay. but I didn't actually, I didn't listen to it and didn't try and learn from it. I didn't pay attention to other bass players and to see what they were doing. Right. You know, as soon as I started playing banjo, I, mean, I was listening to it all the time. The radar you know, I was, was right, okay. you know, right in front of the stage looking at Sonny Osborne's fingers or Rob McCurry or, you know, just like, staring at their fingers for the whole set yeah whereas when i was playing bass i i mean i didn't really pay attention to other just do the thing yeah i just do it yeah. yeah that's that's interesting was there any element of uh a lot of people tried especially at the age that we're talking about are rebelling against what their parents do and it seems like that's when you swung greater you know more strongly toward it how did that work out and was there was there any consternation that you had about doing that or were you were you sheepish about like okay i'm into the banjo now all right now let's have it no no i was always very gung-ho about it uh, like a hundred percent um i didn't really go through a rebellious stage a lot of that it's my personality you know i'm, I'm pretty low-key um but also my parents weren't very um like prescriptive about what they required us to be doing right they were 
kind of not laissez-faire, but uh, just um, kind of supportive in whatever path we wanted to go on, as long as it, I guess, wasn't destructive or whatever. And I'm just not a very destructive person, you know, so um, my path was pretty straight and narrow just anyway. So, yeah, I didn't, it didn't feel like a capitulation to say, oh, okay, I'm going to play bluegrass now. I was just like, bluegrass, bluegrass, you know, banjo, banjo. I was extremely, I was just into it. Uh, so you you said you started having your ears up to to anyone who was in front of you that was doing it. Who especially caught your ear that maybe influenced you in, in the early days? Well, the obviously the person who's playing I heard the most was my mom. So mm-hmm. I play most like her. I listened, you know, studied Earl the most. As far as just, of course, I didn't see him in person for years and years and years. But, you know, he wasn't playing at that time. Right. I wasn't that drawn to Flatten Scruggs's recorded material early on, but I had a couple tapes of some live shows, and that stuff I just wore out. Hmm. Um, what do you think the difference was? You know, it's got to be the live versus studio. I mean, it's not like they weren't playing live in the studio, but probably just something about how the band was clicking in front of an yeah. audience. Or even, like, a, a bunch of them were radio broadcasts, so uh, just... You know, something about how they were presenting the the energy of the music for, you know, going out over the airwaves or whatever. More off the cuff, probably, than yeah. what than what they had done in the studio. Um, it was just a lot more lively than their studio stuff, I felt. Later on, I got more into the, the studio recordings, but the live stuff was really what I dug, you know, back then. Cool. Um, as far as other people that I listened to a lot... Um, I listened to Rob McCurry a lot. I listened to Larry Perkins, mm-hmm. who I just adore. Um, it wasn't a huge variety of people, mostly just, you know, the traditional, older style traditional players, I would say. Jim Mills. Was there a, was there a certain point that you felt like you started doing things that you maybe could identify as your own rather than just stealing things from Murphy or stealing things from wherever they might have been coming from? I did start writing tunes fairly early, so I think it was pretty gradual. Um, and pretty early on, I had that concept of um, just playing whatever because this song doesn't stop even if you have screwed up, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, you know, from having, you know, played bass in the band already, that was just like, you just keep going no matter what, you know, right? Yeah, so, it's especially important for that, yeah. So I feel like I pulled in a lot of stuff that way that just I wouldn't have planned out to play otherwise. It just, you know, out of desperation because you just have to play something. So I feel like that arose naturally as my own stuff that just garbled out when I was. Is there an example that fun. you can think of of that, of something that you came up with accidentally or that maybe started as a mistake or? This was 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So you said you played mostly like Murphy. I I think you I think you mentioned that. Yeah. What, what do you consider to be her style as opposed to maybe someone else, um, Rob McCurry or Larry Perkins or, or someone like that? Um, well, she's you know very much just Earl Scruggs with a side of Ralph Stanley, mm-hmm. right? And it has that Stanley kind of edge a lot of times. Um, and like the stuff that I expanded, you know, back then maybe that she didn't do was I did learn some melodic tunes. Like we had, we had a melodic, the Murphy Method had a, what was called the melodic banjo series at the time of cassette tapes. Yeah. Um, and although she did the teaching, uh, my uncle John Hedgecoth did the playing 
on those because oh. she doesn't she doesn't do a lot. She's not interested in melodic at all. So you heard her voice explaining it, but it was John doing the picking on it. So I actually learned most of those. Okay. Um, so I did, uh, you know, expand a bit on what I had gotten from her. Um, like Rob does a, does a lot of um, playing in D at a D position, which Murphy doesn't do that much. And I tried to do more playing uh, without a capo. Um, like just a C or D or even E or F. I dig F, you know, without a capo, which took a while to develop because those are pretty hard for a beginning banjo player. Um, but Murphy didn't do that very much at all back then. I think she does more now mm-hmm. because she's heard me do it for so long. Um, but that's something that she's maybe getting from you. Yeah. As opposed to vice versa. Well, given, given that we have the audience that we do, mostly banjo players, Let's dive into that. Like, what do you think helped you find an approach to play in E or F or D open without a capo? Like, what are some things that people should try if that's something that they're having trouble with? So I definitely started uh, with C position mm-hmm. uh, because that's, of all, the, uh, of all the positions that are not playing out of open G, C is the next easiest, yeah. right? Because C is your um, home base there. Um, and, uh, so you, so you're working with C and F and G, which is open. So you've got at least one open, uh, some open licks and rolls that you can do. So when I was, so I, I think I had some tunes in C, you know, the singing songs are usually pretty easy. Like I saw the light or whatever. Definitely upper intermediate type level, but doable. Yeah. I've taught it to people who can do it. And then when I was trying to figure out D, I mentally just tried to move up C to frets. So mm-hmm. initially I took everything that I did in C and uh, just pretended like my index finger was the nut, mm-hmm. right? I, I made it do all of the job that the nut was doing. So initially I, I would have played exactly what I played in C. done here probably or to make it match C exactly so that'll get you pretty far if you can make that mental shift Um, and I guess we should also make a quick note that you also spiked your high string to A so it's it's not pure open D but yeah you made that accommodation to uh, um, be more friendly that is good to point out absolutely (laughs) I remember I asked um, I asked Rob one time how he had learned how he had gotten so good at playing an open D. And he said, You just have to do it. <laughs> That's very, very Rob of I him. Know it. Okay. <laughs> so it's so true and so unhelpful mm-hmm. <laughs> to somebody who's trying to learn how to do it. It's almost um it's much just like Zen in its wisdom. <laughs> yeah. you, you do it, you learn to do it by doing it. Which yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. Um so it would. It took me. I did that for a while, and then it took me longer to realize that. Okay, if when you're in D, you have uh, your four chord is open, 
Now your G, you can use the G rolls as a four, so you don't have to you, you use your F shape um, position for your four chord anymore. You have, and then and then you also have the second fret open for your five chord. So those are aspects I think of as more um, specific to D position rather mm -hmm. than as derivative from moving C shape up two frets. Yeah. Um, as far as other keys like E, I specifically remember in high school, my first band that I was like the banjo player with, As I mean, I had the family band where I was still the bass player, um, but it was called, it was a local band around here called the Singing Cops. It was okay. gospel grand band, we you know played in churches and whatever. Um, so I was the banjo player uh, with them, and we were at some practice. We were pr practice one week, and um, my capo was not in my case, so I was capo less. And we did some right. stuff in E or whatever. I'm like, oh my gosh, E, what you know, like so. I just basically did the same thing I did for C, except I took D and moved it up, and then but you don't have your open. D string anymore like everything sure. is closed yeah. so I was just like <laughs> closing ah. in around you yeah <laughs> <clears throat> um, so I'm sure I was extremely awkward uh -huh. um, and then you know you gotta send your fist string up another two frets and then to get a low note you have to go all the way down to actual E right. chord down here so it, it probably was super awkward but again I approached it the same way like taking what I would have played in D and just scooting up two frets and now you have to have everything covered yeah so as far as you know that's was my mental approach just keep on scooting it up and get your fingers to do the jobs that otherwise would have been done by the capo or the nut. So these days when you do have a perfectly working uh, capo available, is that something that you'll still try to do to um, maybe achieve an effect or, or that you're comfortable with? Like what, what is your approach? It's more situational these days like it depends on the song if i want it to sound yeah. a certain way or if i know that i am going to want to like have a drone a, a drone open sounds i'll um you know be more likely to play it uh, open as but i almost never capo um to c mm -hmm. whereas i did that a lot when i was learning um b sure a yes um but if it's ear if, if if it's f i'm almost almost always likely to play it open um, yeah. The only uh, like it all, that all depends on the feel of the song, sure. right? If you want to have it more driving, like you're gonna more, I'm gonna more likely choose a, a capoed or less open position to give it more more punchy and less drony, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. So where did you go from there? You were playing with the the cops. What did you? <laughs> the singing cops. The singing yeah. cops. You went to college around here, but then you moved to Nashville. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I play. I went to the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, where I double majored in English and women's studies. Um, I didn't find that much bluegrass in Charlottesville, really. I did play in uh, three local bands um, over the course of my college years, but they weren't local to Charlottesville, where the college was. Like the, they were Virginia bands, but you know, I had to like drive to get to the practices or whatever. Yeah. Um, so after I graduated. I came back home for a summer when I recorded my uh, banjo album. Mm -hmm. 
which is called Real Women Drive Trucks. Like, my goal was always to move to Nashville, but I wanted to get my album done first. Yeah. So I got that done, moved uh, to Nashville, um, 2001. This was 2001. And um, there, you know, I knew that I would have to earn the money in order to stay there. So uh-huh. I got a job at a restaurant, Chibo restaurant, uh, which was right in downtown Nashville. Okay. Um, Working, uh, the owner was a woman named Sylvia Harrelson, who was a great singer, friend of Kathy Kiavala, who is how I got the job. Interesting. Um, and uh, Sylvia uh, sings um, like Patsy Cline. It was like she's oh, a, a great, cool. you know, big country yeah, voice. Nice. Um, so that was awesome. And also, I started working at uh, Terry Comer's dentist office down in Franklin, which was also a Bluegrass Connection because Sally Jones um, worked there prior. Pre- before I did, Sandra Block worked there before Sally did. So he just kind of kept handing yeah. <laughs> the job down. Wow. Okay. To, um, and then Patty Mitchell worked there after I did. Uh-huh. Um, so I actually ended up working there. He's known as the Bluegrass Dentist. Um, <laughs> I'm talking like everybody is, would have heard of him, but of course not. Um, so he uh, is a guitar player, singer. Yeah. No, he was great to work for because, of course, he understood the musician aspect when, yeah. whenever I needed time off to go wherever, you know, he was like, fine. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kept that as a day job basically the whole time I was in Nashville. I taught lessons, um, you know, the whole time that I was mm-hmm. in Nashville as well. Worked for a variety of bands. Um, I was with Tim Graves in Cherokee for a very short time as a bass player. Uncle Earl played banjo mm-hmm. for them before they went full old time. So I was prior to Abigail Washburn. I, I saw you play up in Lansing at yeah. the hole in that was my hometown. And like to I'm not from Virginia. That's like a big deal when someone who plays banjo comes to town. So yeah, yeah I I, I saw you with that. I can vouch. Um uh let's see. I played uh, of course with um the Dixie Beeliners yeah. for a couple of years. And my brother and I also had a band for a couple of years um, called Casey and Chris and the two stringers. our own band um and then i had the opportunity to do some really cool stuff like um play a few gigs on bass with june carter cash oh wow. um, which was pretty awesome um played uh an americana music awards show with her and johnny cash was on the, that show too it was like the award show you know oh, entertainment wow. um i feel like i played some other bass gig with her too i can't remember off the top of my head what it, what it was and then i played a few things with um michael martin murphy just that was a right place, right time kind of thing. So I got to play on the Opry with him. Yeah. My one and only Opry appearance. And that was a banjo gig? It was. Oh, great. Um, 
Pat Flynn, um, who I had played some banjo stuff with, uh, was like Michael Martin Murphy's musical director, you know, band, you yeah. know, who like assembled the band and all the players and everything. So uh, he got me that gig for which I'm oh, grateful. Oh, how cool. Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. So I kind of did all that over the years uh, uh-huh. that I was there. And then um, when I had uh, my first kid, I was like, I need to be closer to my parents because free babysitting, yeah. you know. Uh, so I moved back <laughs> Not here for to everybody, Winchester. Just for you. Just, you know, we just put that out there. Exactly. Um, so I moved back here to Winchester um, 11 years ago now, 11 and a half years ago. Um, and since then, I've just been teaching because you don't have to travel. I can do it right out of my house. Um, and that works out really well. In terms of closing the door on the Nashville experience, what would you say that you... What were like some lessons that you learned in ter- in terms of like what it takes to be like that kind of professional caliber player who gets those interesting gigs and maybe gets gets into playing in some of those bands? Well, you have to be really good. I mean, like you have to be able to cut the gig. I probably should have practiced more than I did. You have to be out and about in the music community. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as I moved there, I every night was at the station inn. Yeah. Uh, you know, just. It's it's about hanging out, it's having fun, but also making connections, meeting people so that people know that you're around Yeah, in town. You have to have multiple income streams. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? sounds like it. You know, like in case, you know, because you're not always going to have a steady run of gigs necessarily. Um, so, you know, with the day job teaching. Um, eventually I developed the, um, you know, selling individual video lessons. That was as, when you were still in Nashville? That yeah. you did that? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a more recent uh, development. It's been 2009 I started yeah. doing that. Okay. And that actually came out about kind of organically because uh, I had a guy who was taking lessons for me who drove over from Memphis, which is like a four-hour drive. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <clears throat> so he got, he did that a few times, but he was like, I don't really want to drive this far. Can you just record the lesson and send it to me? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I guess I can. So I re- like recorded, I think it was Shucking the Corn and, or uh, Shenandoah Breakdown or something. And so I recorded it and edited it together so it wasn't all choppy and sent it to him. And then I'm like, I've got this lesson now. I could just like sell it to other people too. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of how it just like started. I was like, oh, I can do this one song at a time and that works. Yeah. So that just grew from there. I mean, now I've got like, I don't know, 450 songs maybe, Dang. you know, on my uh, website that you can just order on a single song basis. Now, is that under the Murphy Method umbrella or is it? Kind of. I mean, okay. it's definitely, you know, taught by ear in the Murphy Method style. Um, it's not on the Murphy Method branded site. It's on my site. But, okay. Um, got it. But it's all, I mean, I also run the Murphy Method site, so it's just, it's... A blurry line. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades, and Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal, customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried-and-true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are, if you can dream it, Eric can build it. 
I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning banjo with Bill Evans, bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard to find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide, by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880. Speaking of that Murphy Method style, Murphy is quite a a hardliner with this getting off the page and getting off the tab thing. Um, To what degree do you subscribe to that? At 100%. Yeah. Like, I don't use tab. I don't learn from tab. I don't use it when I teach. Especially for the kinds of students who make their way to me, which mm-hmm. are usually retired adults, mm-hmm. you know, starting like beginners, it makes it so much harder. You know, it's just like it's a it's a crutch, but not just a crutch. It's like a stumbling block to to have to interpret all these little dots on the page and make them come out as music. You know, um, it, it's terribly slow. And so I, yeah, I 100% by ear. Now, Murphy does take a little bit of a harder line, like, you know, I'm teaching this guy right now. He is 80, you know, and he he loves playing the banjo. And he's and, a beginner. And yeah, he's been taking for a bunch of years now. So yeah, he is intermediate ish. Yeah, yeah. And he uses tab. Murphy won't teach him because of that. But, you know, it's if he likes it, eh, but it's only because like he, there's no change in him at this age, at <laughs> that late age, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, why? I'm not going to bang my head against the wall trying to break his tab habit um but you know anybody who who starts with me no way like if you try and write anything down you'll you'll hear about it (laughs) interesting so i don't know explain why you 
feel so strongly about that? Um, having gotten so many students who have been trying to learn from TAB and they come to me because they're not making progress or just they're, you know, frustrated. Like a lot of times you'll get to a plateau, students will, and then they'll try and, you know, find something new to get them past the, wherever they have stalled out. Yeah. Um, people who have learned from TAB can't actually play any of the stuff that they've learned off of TAB okay. without looking at the TAB. Which it means they haven't actually learned it, yeah. right? Um, so I'm like, because I don't let them look at anything, of course, because that's my way. Um, so I'm like, okay, play me something. And they, like, even the first song they learned out of there, but they can't play. They cannot sit down and play a song out of it, you know. And I mean, even beyond that, the fact that they can't actually use what they're learning. Um, when you start taking in information off the page. It's like your ears turn off, right? You're, you're, mm. you're playing the dots on the page, but you're not connecting. You're not actually hearing what they sound like, how they make the song. Yeah. So you're learning notes, maybe. <laughs> you're playing notes, maybe not learning them. And yet they are not coming out as music, right? For So it's it's not nice to listen to for, you know, a listener to just hear all these no, like there's a difference in listening between to somebody who is playing a tune and somebody who is playing notes lined up next to each other. Yeah, you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't hit uh, a little about soul that. missing to it, it or ex- something. yeah exactly. Yeah. So you, students do not make the connection that these dots equal this lick hmm. or this melody. Um, so it just it that doesn't work. Uh, I tend to agree, but just to like keep going with this. Don't you think there that there might be value in terms of like preserving something that you learned, e- even if you learned it by ear? Like I've figured out plenty of tunes that I can't play now, and it, it might that that I learned by ear. Maybe it would be handy for me to document it somehow. Do you do you even I don't know what's what's your thought process with that something like that? Um, so if you learned it by ear and have forgotten it, which I mean I learn everything by ear, and yeah, I have forgotten a lot of what I've, you know, especially yeah. the custom lesson stuff that I do. The recording is your reference, right? You go listen to whatever you learned it from and it triggers how to play it, right? Basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, writing it down might've been good before the advent of recorded technology, right. right? You know, and, you know, there's the thing where the the written version of it is only as good as whoever was transcribing it. Of course, um, yeah. You know, I mean, even... Uh, uh, like references like the Scruggs book fall prey to typos, you know, or having an entire measure from one song being plopped into the middle of another song that it, nobody catches it. And if you're just, if you don't know what it sounds like in advance, then <laughs> you just play right through this thing and have it not make any sense. And especially if you're one of these people who you just referenced who your ears are turned off and you're just playing the notes thinking it's going to sound like the thing. Exactly. Not completely oblivious to the fact that it really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, these days there is no reason you can't Google up a, reco- a, a an audio uh, reference for whatever you're playing. Pretty much anything. You know, yeah. right? Just there, the technology is it's so convenient. Yeah. You just like punch it into whatever and it, you'll be yeah. able to play it in five seconds. Yeah. If you can find this podcast, you can <laughs> find all the other things. Exactly. Cool. Are you still performing? Not much. Since I had kids, I'm mostly just teaching. Yeah. Every now and then something will come up. Uh, oh, there, we did have a very short-lived uh, band about 10, 9 or 10 years ago now with um, Tom Adams. 
and Marshall Wilburn, uh, Thomas played guitar. Marshall was bass, of course, and I was playing banjo, and it was called the Gooseneck Rockers. <laughs> All right. And uh, that was very short-lived, but very fun. So we, we played yeah. just a, a few little gigs, and David McLaughlin played on some of the gigs, too. Oh, nice. So... I, th- that was the last like band situation. For a low key, that... short lived band, that's quite a that's quite a lineup. <laughs> I know, right? It's it's. Um, I mean, I grew up with with Marshall and David, uh-huh. and uh, a little less so Tom because he lived those a couple hours, you know, up in Gettysburg. So they're just you know, this so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. I sometimes forget. I mean, I don't forget that I was playing with you know three fifths of the Johnston Mountain Boys, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. But. Um, I guess I'm not intimidated by, by them so yeah. much, you know, because they've known me since I was two <laughs> or whatever. That makes um, sense. It's a, li- a little famili- familial, you know, because yeah. they're just around so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really, musically, that was awesome. But these days, I, I don't get out much. I would like to more as my kids get older, um, but haven't quite reached that threshold yet. <laughs> what progress have you made maybe in your own playing, I guess, even since... Since the Nashville days, how do you think that has progressed from being this um, Murphy Henry style player that you used to be? But what what other things have you incorporated that you think make your playing unique? So when when you play really slow, mostly and explain banjo over and over again for eleven years, it's really great for the the polishing and the technicality of it, mm-hmm. right? You know. Uh, pull-offs or you know hammer-ons that like like cl- general cleanliness of playing and i'm also super good at um that th- sounds like i'm making a big deal about it but i'm not but i've just had a lot of practice at learning people's breaks off of records you know just because i teach them a lot of times note for note yeah. in the lessons so i'm pretty fast at that uh you know oh, just cool. uh, m- more so i have more facility at it than i did uh a decade ago, just because I do it, you know, once a week or a couple times a month, just absorb somebody else's break. Um, mm-hmm. So I have more, probably more, uh, larger variety of techniques, licks that I use that that I can incorporate, and um, maybe I can make things sound more like I want them to sound. I mean, I'm still I'm very melody oriented as a player. Mm-hmm. Like I want to try and you know, play the phrasing like the singer is singing the phrasing, play the words as it were. Um, I feel like I'm better able to do that now just because I'm probably better at, at technical, technically as a player than I was. I know this is putting you on the spot, but are you able to think of any examples recently of like a good break that closely mimics a vocal melody or maybe a break that gave you a new lick that uh, you were able to learn because of the fact that you're transcribing these mm-hmm. solos. It's going to have to be something I learned really recently because it, I mean, the... In and out. <laughs> the, uh, well, yeah, the stuff that I learned for the lessons, it's people that other, other people request these songs. So sometimes it's stuff that I wouldn't have um, chosen to learn myself. Sure. Um, so I think of them kind of as, I don't know, maybe like, like soap opera actors learning lines, right? You know, you, you learn it, you nail it for the perform the recording of it and then like never think of it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it is that in and out. Um, but the one, but okay, so I can regurgitate the one that I recorded five days ago, okay. <laughs> four days ago, which was um, Earl Scruggs' Little Maggie. So Fontaine Scruggs, uh, 
recorded or played Little Mag at the live and live, live at Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. concert. Um, and I'm not sure if I've ever like listened through to that album straight through. And Little Maggie is also one that I wouldn't that I associate so strongly with Ralph Stanley and sure. the Stanley Brothers. So and anytime I've played it, it's been basically, you know, kind of Ralph Stanley. More of a Ralph thing. Not that I've learned his break note for note either, because I haven't, but uh just very uh the more of a slant more of that slant, you know, to the break. Um so Earl's break was interesting. The I'm not gonna play the low break because it was um it was very live sounding. Like the first half of his break didn't have a lot of flow to it. It was a little mm. bit choppy. And then he kind of hit his stride in the second half of the break. Okay. Um, but the high break came toward the end of the song. He was right on. And the one little thing that he uh, did in this, which I'll just say and then I'll play it, is is he played the, you know, so this so little Maggie, uh, it um, starts in your one chord and then goes backwards to your uh, seven, flat seven, uh, which is the F, you know, here in the key of G. So I would always, always have moved backwards, like taken this Cumberland Gap position G chord at eight and nine and moved it backwards too, right, to get to the F. But Earl plays it at the the 10th uh, fret right here. Yeah. <clears throat> Same note, but I never in a million years would have thought of playing that there with the melody note on the third string for whatever reason. Just, it's there. Yeah. Why not use it? But I never would have thought of it. So... That's kind of cool. Uh, let's see. That's the other funny thing about it is all those tag licks on yeah, the end. Yeah. I can just picture in my mind like... Lester either trying to remember the words or like not being able to get to the mic, exactly. you know, somebody's That's in the I way. <laughs> and if you, you can listen to the whole track, you can kind of hear the audience like tittering a little bit. You know, there's that kind of rustling and you can just... They're probably imagine. hamming it up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you can yeah. just, we're all just doing all those tag, like stringing them together like that. <laughs> That's why I like the live stuff. You know, That's it's just those like moments like that, you know. Yep. Uh, so I guess another question is, when the main melody note goes to that F note, um, how do you listening by ear tell that it's in that position rather than um, the the first way that you maybe would have instinctively done it? Um, after you, so it really is the two ways: the surrounding notes and the tone of of the note itself. So um, this, these are the two melody notes. Uh, which in in this case is is playing on the second string at the eighth fret and then the um, third string at the tenth fret, mm-hmm. um, and then the uh, fill in note fill in roll that comes after it. Let's see. Yeah, so it's a forward roll. Five three one five, and if you were to get that note here, you would have this note in the roll uh, with your first string note of the 7th fret whereas this roll has this note on the top right both of them are going to have the open 5th because that's the constant so you listen to what are the accompanying notes for the chord and just find the spot on the neck you know where you have the other correct notes that match it where it makes sense yeah without some really goofy 
stretch position. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, it's going to, it's playing super fast. Like I wasn't anywhere near the tempo that they played it live. So, you know, it's going to go by like in a flash. So it has to be convenient. It has to flow. So you can use all of those kind of clues too figure out where it has to be. What tools do you use to do that? I imagine you're slowing them down um, and take me through that process. I just use the amazing slowdowner. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, other software things that do the same thing. And even if you're working off a YouTube video, you know, you can slow that down pretty well. But I like the amazing slowdowner because you can loop it. I don't do much other than just slow it down and, uh, you know, kind of take it a lick at a time. Sometimes even just four notes at a time if it's a tricky um, if it's a tricky break. If it's somebody who's playing is really familiar, like Earl's, it can go pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like that break that I just played, he keeps the same roll over and again, over and over again. The right. right, it's just like two, two, one, five, two, one, five. And he just moves all over the place and uses that roll over and over again. Yeah. So that was actually really easy. But so we'll go back to the, the low break which um, was not easy at all. I actually, t- I, like, I planned to record it one week, but then had to put it off for another week because it just wasn't You knew sinking you didn't quite in. have it. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't sinking in because, I mean, let's see if I can remember it. Um, because the first half is so choppy and doesn't flow. <laughs> that was the problem. Let's see. some tag licks on the end of that too but like these first licks like this what follows that that's that's fine but it's not two pinches like i would expect it's pinch and a fifth string he needs his he needs his first string his first string clear for the next note but even this one you would think it would be like a driving forward roll but it's like skipping over a note and then uh. so like the the rolls aren't really connecting they're not flowing it took me a really long time to like okay what notes are there what notes are do i think should be there but aren't really there so that that all made it harder so you just have to like peck away a note at a time and there's there's a weird philosophy about how much do you try to emulate a mistake yeah if, that, if you think that's a mistake you know maybe you do maybe you don't but i feel like lots of those were unintentional yeah right you know i mean he's they're not i wouldn't go so far as necessarily mistakes because they clearly kind of still play still the melody fit. of the yeah. song right um just not um you know as smoothly as typical notes or something yeah you know again the live situation like maybe he's distracted by something who knows what's going on uh, at the time he's playing it another thing that makes it hard and that you have to watch out for is uh what you think it's going to be really influences what you are like figuring it out from the record like if like this um that (laughs) that hammer like like, I did, it took me a while to realize that it, it wasn't a full forward roll, that it was just no second string, and then the first string. 
<laughs> yeah, that's some really careful listening. Yeah, that's... and uh, so technique-wise, I pick out what I think it is. Yeah. And then I play it simultaneously with what, you know, with the source. And that lets notes stick out that either I'm playing that aren't there or mm. notes that I'm playing that are different from what's on the recording. Mm-hmm. And it'll it'll pop out if you're playing it, you know, at the same time. Yeah, that's that's that can be, te- you know, you said you're getting quicker at it, but that's a tedious process. Yeah, especially on something like this. And it's also really mentally tiring. Like I can't take in very much at a time, you know, if it's a familiar song, a phrase, yeah, easily. But uh, something like this, I, you know, I would just like take half a phrase, maybe two licks before my brain kind of reaches that full point and I can't yeah. put anything else into it. Yeah, it's a lot of it. concentration. Exactly. Have you been stumped? Do, do your students ever bring you something either just a little too weird or a little too, obs- you know, outrageous for whatever reason? I say no to a lot of things. Um, okay. I get requests for a lot of stuff that I... Uh, say, no, I can't do that. Not because I couldn't actually figure it out, but (laughs) my prep time is pretty limited. What with the two kids and the homeschooling and all that kind of stuff. Um, Sleeping, (laughs) eating, you know. (laughs) know. So if I can't like have it ready to teach in about 20 minutes, I just say no. Now, I do sometimes kind of make exceptions for like this Earl break or, you know, like a JD break or something that A, I like to do. And that... um, you know, it is kind of fulfilling to my soul to learn, yeah. you know, like I'll, I will, I'll do those even if it's, um, even if it takes me longer, but if it's some like random rock song that has a, has a banjo roll underneath it, like I'm not going to invest a whole lot of time in that because, um, it's not, it's not bluegrass for one thing. Like some things feel, some licks feel good under your fingers, right? Like it just like, you're like, oh yeah, this you know, they just feel good to play. Yeah. So if something doesn't feel good to me to play, I'm more likely to pass on it. Has doing this process given you an appreciation for any certain players who you had maybe overlooked and maybe discovered just by dissecting their uh, their breaks um, or their style? Yeah, actually, somebody has recently has asked me for a few um, Bobby Thompson tunes. Mm-hmm. So Bobby Thompson was not anybody who I paid any attention to learning um, because he, uh, you know, leans melodic. Yeah, highly melodic player. Right. Well, I've been all around my old hometown. I've searched everywhere I know. But I can't find a trace of my girl in this place. So there's nothing to do but go. I'll be riding that midnight train when it's leaving and I'm going away to stay. Always wanted to know where that engine did go. Gonna go where it goes today. But in learning the couple of his breaks that I have learned recently, don't ask me to play them because they're in okay. and out already. Uh, like it's a really, it's not, it's not like a, it's not a Bill Keithy melodic where, where you know it's like just uh, long strings of sixteenth notes necessarily. It's, it's just a, kind of a different take. Like there's there's licks. It really it plays a lot of melody, yes, but doesn't busy it up too much. With yeah. a lot of mm, other mm, chromatic-y stuff, maybe. Um, 
it's another one of those a little bit um, ineffable, it kind of feels good when you play it type things. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I definitely appreciated the, the couple breaks of his that I figured out. I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of this is kind of cool. But it's still that stuff, you know, it's melodic, which is not really my wheelhouse. So I'm not going to take that and use it. Yeah. Um, it's more of a, yeah, this is really cool, but not my style kind of thing. Now, would that have been like playing he did with Jim and Jesse kind of things? I think um, it was probably, or... at least one of them was the Jim and Jesse era. Um, one was maybe off one of his solo albums. Okay. So, yeah, not I'm not hugely band, familiar but, either. Maybe I should maybe I should check him out. But I think that general kind of era. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that in comparison to Murphy, you did a lot more composing. I think you said that. Maybe I'm starting to mix up what Murphy told me. But at any rate... Someone, someone in this house today <laughs> told me that you do um, more composing. So talk about that. Talk about the, the process you use to write a tune or maybe if you have a, an original example and you, that you want to use to talk about how you wrote it. Um, sure. Yeah, please do so. Um, so Murphy writes uh, a lot more uh, singing songs, right? It was a song with yeah. words. She's always been a wordsmith and, uh, you know, has just written tons of stuff, but hasn't... Uh, written that many instrumentals. Mm -hmm. So uh, my writing is more from the instrumental side of it. Well, completely the instrumental side since I've never written any songs with words. Um, so um, I'm not, I usually am a, a, a deadline type writer. <clears throat> not so much for my first album. Which is like, I kind of collected those tunes over the first seven years that I played. Mm -hmm. um, and that was what, about 50-50 original versus it was trad? It was more, more toward original. Was it? Okay. Um, there were, I'm like tricking the straw is on there and Dixie Breakdown and our double banjo arrangement. But everything else I wrote uh, with the exception of one lullaby, which I arranged. Um, so everything else was on there was um, original. Oh, Liberty. Uh, okay. I also did not write. But um, other than that, I tended have tended to write just like when I need a new tune to record. <laughs> like I wrote one for the Casey and Chris album. I wrote one for the Stelling Banjo Anthology album. Yeah. I wrote one for the Patexent Banjo Project album. And then uh, here recently, a couple, a couple years ago, I, I um, wrote a couple um, new tunes. At least one was inspired by getting these ugly tuners yeah. for uh, my banjo, which um, if you have are, are not familiar with them, so ugly tuners are, um, they're like cam tuners. Uh, so they change, you know, the pitch of the string as you're playing like Keith tuners do. And then um, there's a couple other, uh, you know, things that you can get to do the same thing. But these are the ones that Sonny Osborne designed yeah. and um, marketed. And they are fabulous. I absolutely love them. Okay. Um, and uh, so I got them. And then, and so, you know, I play all the regular tuner songs and have, written actually several tuner songs because that is one like path of thought that I frequently have when writing banjo tunes because um, so much stuff has already been played banjo tune wise yeah. you know so it's always a challenge to come up with something that's either a new melodic hook or a new just something different you know to yeah. distinguish what you're about to write from everything else that's everything already else. Yeah. Um, so tuner songs are a little bit uh, underexplored versus non-tuner songs. Yeah. Um, so I always try and like think, okay, what, you know, what can I do that hasn't been done? How can I use this in a way that somebody hasn't already done it? Um, so I got these, these uh, this set of ugly tuners and I was like, what can I do with these 
specifically that I that could not be done with Keith tuners. Like, how can I use these in a way that is unique to these? To those ones, yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, okay, you can t- you can turn them both at the same time. Yeah. You can't do that with Keith tuners. So that's what immediately came to my mind too. Yeah. So that's cool, right? Yeah, right so, so I'm like, wait, so I'll try and come up with something where I where I do them both down at the same time or both, you know, different notes at the same time. And I also tend to um, try and lean more toward the tunings that haven't been done as much, like um, you know the the um, the Earl's breakdown slash Foggy Mountain Flint Hill special mm-hmm. um, tuning is more common, like where both notes go down. I don't even know what these are set. <laughs> Um, yeah. where both notes are going down. So you can do that at the same time. And you get like a um, steel guitar kind a of vibe. Steel thing. Yeah, pedal steel vibe. Um, so I'm like, so I tend to say, oh, well, what else can I do? So I went the other direction. I tend to uh, try and think of stuff I can do with the Randy Lynn Rag tuning, yeah. which is where the uh, the second string, oh, second string? <laughs> <laughs> the second string um, goes up to a C note. Um, and so I came up with this tune where not only do I do them both at the same time, but I, because of the way the le- little levers are, so I know y- y'all can't see this, you know, listening to the podcast, but, um, so these tuners have little uh, levers that stick out the top and bottom of your peg head, kind of near the nut. Yeah. And you just, um, you know, reach up right there and, and move them with your index and thumb, you know, of your uh, fretting hand. So this actually means that you can turn, you can uh, move the note while you are actually rolling. Oh, wow. While you're fretting, while while you're still fretting. So I came up with this tune that um, I'm going to have to stop and retune for, but uh, where I tune them both at the same time and while I'm fretting still with the fretting hand and reach up and tune it while I'm rolling. And it's in the Randy Lynn And it's in the Randy Lynn's. Okay. So all sorts of goofiness. All right. Interesting. Oh, it's called T-Horse Road. I was going to ask that too. T-Horse Great. does the what is it the the flint hill special thing flint hill special yeah. pattern but uh-huh. with randy lynn t- okay yeah. that's that's funny it's a I, nod, I, a yeah, nod to that. a little banjo inside joke there mm-hmm, that's exactly. cool very cool i'm i'm already imagining somebody who now that they've taken your advice to learn things by ear having to pick that one apart go for it <laughs> <laughs> with all the tutor changes and whatnot mm-hmm. that's crazy um so you said you're, um, what, how did you put it, a deadline uh, composer, and you mentioned the Patuxent project and the Stelling things. Were those ones that they, that there was an expectation that you were going to write an original song, or that was just important to you for some reason to, to have that be an original um, piece? 
both of those, uh, I had been asked to be included in the project to like play something, you know, yeah. a tune or whatever. And um, I just wanted to have it be an original tune, you yeah. know, like why play something that has already been recorded uh-huh. other places on this new project. So I just, of my own volition, wanted to come up with something original. Yeah, cool. So once you have that deadline, where does it go from there? How do, how do you, is there is there a way you generate some of these ideas or not really i mean um sometimes i'll have um part of a tune that's been around for a while that's kind of lacking um a b part or or, or some kind of conclusion i think that was how i wrote the one for the stelling uh anthology which is called red mary janes first half just kind of knocking around for a while and like okay well I got this and yeah at least that's a start you know yeah <laughs> and then I took it and, and added something to it um, and then for the Patuxent one I, I uh, so that was more recent so I already I was here in Winchester and uh, <laughs> the one that I wrote for that one was called Purple Creek <laughs> When my son Dalton was little, he's 11 and a half now, um, he uh, was really into colors. And he also uh, he signed a lot before he started talking. So we had like different motions and signs for all the colors. Uh, but there were ones that he made up. Uh, yeah. Like, so for the color red, he pointed to his nose because Rudolph the red nosed reindeer. Okay. Also, all these signs were based on songs for somehow. Right. You know, so his sign for purple was he pointed to his eye because one horned, one one winged flying one purple eyed, people one eater. Yeah. One eyed, one horned flying purple people eater. Right. Yeah. So that was his sign for purple. So we were sitting at the desk, <laughs> listening through to one of my lessons on the, you know, just playing back on my computer. And I said something about the Cripple Creek lit, which he interpreted as. He heard that as purple, cripple, purple, yeah. right? So he's like, like all excited, pointing to his eye for purple, and I'm like, yeah, it's purple, sure, purple creek. That makes as much sense as anything. So, yep. um, so I had it. I had the title, like, oh, I, I was like, that deserves a tune. Um, yeah, cool. And then uh, my mom had come up with this silly little song. Um, I was away teaching, I think, actually at um, Banjo Camp North, and Dalton, who was maybe nine months old at the time he was uh scooting along on his belly and uh he had like scraped his belly or something um and so i'd put a band-aid on it Mm -hmm. and so and then i went off and uh (laughs) my mom made up this little song to keep him to get him to not 
mess with the Band-Aid on his belly, right? And it was something like, mm-hmm, Dalton's got a Band-Aid on his belly, on his belly, on his belly. Dalton's got a Band-Aid on his belly and he can't take it off. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's really catchy. You know, yeah. maybe I'll just be like, can I put that on the banjo? <laughs> Like, yeah, that lays out on the banjo really easily. Um, so then I was like texting my mom. I was like, did you actually make that up or is that some other song? So she thought about it and she thought about it. And she was like, maybe days later, got back to me. She's like, it's the old gray mare. The old gray mare. She ain't what she used to be. Ain't ain't what what she, she, yeah. <laughs> so like, so really my, my tune Purple Creek is based on a song that Murphy based on another song. So it's like, it's just the you know, folk process, I yeah. guess. You know, it gets translated through all these different layers. Right. Then it becomes yours. Exactly. You, you haven't copied it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> then I just put tuners in the second part and then it's, you know, like a banjo tune. <laughs> yeah. Lickety split. That's cool. Um, let's talk about your banjo that you have here. Tell everyone, I, I can see mostly what it is, but yeah, d- describe uh, describe it to everyone else and and... Tell us the details. So this is um, my Casey Henry signature model, mm-hmm. which is with the American Made Banjo Company. Um, it's basically a style 11. It was prior to um, getting this signature model, I was playing a Gibson 38 or 39 style 11 that my dad had gotten in the 70s. And um, he made a five-string neck for it. Yeah. Um, and uh, he also... Like originally it was on the blue banjos, right? With blue, uh, a blue paint on the neck and on the resonator. Um, but he didn't want to paint his neck blue that he had just made. So he stripped off the blue paint from the side of the resonator. So it's a, it's a brown style 11. Uh-huh. Um, so this one also is a brown style 11. But I mean, there's nothing particularly like signature about it. Like it's just based standard, you know, standard spacing, standard string height, standard everything. I needed it to feel basically just like my style 11 Mm. so that I could, you know, trade back and forth and play them interchangeably. Um, So that's basically what it is. And um, Robin Smith was the builder. And of course he passed away five years ago now. Um, So this is the last one that he built. Um, Not the last banjo he built, the last Casey Henry signature model that he built. Um, And I don't know whether there will be any more. Like, I don't know whether uh, Tom Mirasola, who owns American Made Banjo Company, I don't know whether he um, has found another builder, is going to find another builder. Mm-hmm. It's a little still up in the air a bit. Um, okay. So there may or may not be any more uh, of these. Um, I did, you know, always had one in stock to sell uh, to my students or to whoever. To whoever. Um, so this is the last one that I haven't sold to anybody. <laughs> so I'll probably hang on to it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what what year was your <clears throat> your original Style 11? 38 or 39. Okay. So, I mean, so you're in a, a great position to answer some pre-war versus new banjo questions, given that this is an, a copy of another one that you own. What do you perceive as the tonal difference between the two? You know, I'm terrible at um, describing tone. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I like it. It's good. Um, it, uh, I, I guess maybe the first question is, do you perceive a difference between the two and which do, um, do you have a preference i feel like new instruments really take a while to break in sure um i had played um like for a while i with these uh, casey henry models i did the thing where i would would buy it and then play it for a while and then sell it 
a la Ralph Stanley and the Stanley Tones, you know. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a little bit, and then, but I got, I got to like number four, I think, and liked it, so I kept that one, um, and then just kept another one in stock to sell. Um, so I played like that number four, Casey Henry model for a dozen years or something. It was really good. Um, okay. And then somebody, oh, then Robin died. And so I had that, I had the one I played for a long time and then I had this one, which is the last Casey Henry model he built. And just for sentimental reasons, I could not sell the last the Casey last Henry model that, yeah. that would ever be produced, you know, by Robin's hands. So, um, so I sold the number four, which, um, and then, so I started playing this one to, at that time it was not as good as the one I sold. Um, but, and so now I've been playing on it for three or so years and it really has started to settle in and like, you know, all vibrates together or whatever, yeah. you know, an instrument does. Um, so it's more, um, more responsive, not necessarily louder, but maybe yes, a little bit louder. The tone is kind of more cohesive. Okay. And do you, and how does that then compare? So that's compared to the number four one. Right. How does that then compare to the original? Mm, my 11. So my 11's got a Huber ring in it. Okay. And it's been in there for quite a long time. Um, it was from like when Steve was pretty early in his tone ring production. So maybe went in in 98 or 99. So it's it's had a really long time to settle in. That was the biggest tone difference in that banjo. Before that, it had a Steve Ryan ring, I think. And uh, the Huber ring made all the difference in that. Wow. Um, so it, it's got a real, mm, I don't know, depth of tone. You know, I think I might have told this story on that on the Earl Scruggs pod, the, 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 the um, oh, episode I, that you did. I should have reminded you about Okay, yeah. yeah keep, 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 um, going, keep going. I'm glad you brought this up, though. So I, I was... Um, privileged to uh, be able to uh, go and pick at Earl's house two or three times after he and Louise had moved to uh, the the George and Tammy Wynette house, which is like a gated mansion. You know, it's huge. Um, so Larry Perkins would call up and ask if I wanted to go over to pick at Earl's. And of course, the answer is yes. Um, so I had, I had been over there picking. I had my old style 11 because I didn't hear um, this, uh, didn't have this one yet. And... Um, so I got it to leave, and you know, I was carrying my banjo. I was like telling Earl by, and he's like, uh, uh, "You want to just leave that here?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'll trade you." Yeah, right. <laughs> alas, he did not take you me up try. on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I did make him laugh though. At yeah, least. good. <laughs> I lost my train of thought after that. Oh, but just the tone. So, so, so I love, <clears throat> I love that old style eleven, and apparently Earl liked how it sounded also. Mm. Um, so that's a vote of confidence, as if ever there was one, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what other, I mean, we've uh, talked about your ugly tuners. Are those still in production? Is this something that people can get still? Um, they're currently not in production anymore. Um, okay. they, the uh, tuner design and uh, whatever name have been bought. Um, it's Alan Tompkins um, uh -huh. from Texas. And so I've been in communication with him like to see um, if the, he might be able to bring it back to market. And he's trying. Um, but of course, it's expensive because inflation. Um, so yeah. at some point, he hopes um, that, you know, he'll be able to get another run uh, manufactured and get him back on the market. Right now, no. <laughs> but at least in your opinion, these are your preferred ones as opposed to the Keith, Keith style or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, they they're the most flexible. Like, um, you can change strings. It, they're just always set. 
right? Um, so you can throw in, you know, the old, the odd tuner, like wherever, without having to pre-plan it. You can change strings and it doesn't change the the setting. Um, and they are really easy to um, flip to different tunings, like the Randy Lynn Rag tuning versus, um, you know, the, the standard one. Um, easy and quick to yeah. reset. Uh, whereas the Keith tuners, I always have to set them at least twice, you know, like, like tune it down, set the screw back up, set the screw, and then it comes back sharp. So you have to redo the whole thing. There's and some like, fudginess factor going on. Yes, yeah. this, there is no fudgy fact. It is a screw and you tighten it down to the right, you know, it just stops there. Yeah. Sounds uh, great. It's, these are fabulous. Cool. Any other gear type stuff that you're really partial to in terms of picks or anything I mean, like that? I mean, I, I, yes, I'm quite partial to, to the gear that I use, but I'm not much of a gear head, Got right? It. Like, I mean, I play on Dunlop um, 0.025 gauge, which is the heaviest gauge yeah. uh, picks, but I've used the same set of picks for 20 years. I mean, they haven't worn out. Wow. Like, they're a little flatter on the tips than they were when I started using them, but, you know, I haven't lost them, haven't stepped on them or anything, so they just keep on going. And I use some Golden Gate thumb picks, Either currently I'm using the like the yellow, um, like yellow stripey. I don't know what you call this color, plastic. I Ivoroid is the Ivoroid, uh, technical Ivoroid term one. for that one. Yeah, but also I I have have sometimes used the um like per the white kind of pearloid mm -hmm. pattern also. Um the medium size, although sometimes it's a little bit loose. Um so I have to like try on a bunch of them, you know, to find oh, one that's like changed. on the small oh, size yeah. of medium. And um, you know, I I also have signature strings with the American Made Banjo Company, which are light gauge, 9, 11, 13, 29. That's what I've always played on. Um, and that's currently, it came with uh, uh, the bridge. It came with the one that Robin built, which is like Heartland, you know, that sunken wood or something. I don't know exactly. Um, yeah. I changed it out to this um, Scorpion bridge a while ago just to see what the difference. And honestly, it wasn't that much of a difference. Okay. And, I don't like messing with my banjo, so I just have never yeah, <laughs> changed it back. Just keep it on. You know, it's heck? just like kind of. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you know, Presto tailpiece comes. Oh, the one thing that I am kind of particular to is is having this, um, what do we call it, planetary fist string, I think. Like it doesn't have the peg sticking out the side. Yeah. Um, I detest the kind with the peg sticking out the side. Um, you know, this, I think people don't like it because it's hard to change strings. Yeah. But I like it because you hardly have to have any wrap on the post at all, and it holds. Okay. Like, you just made, like, one wrap, and it, it holds. Those ones with the, you know, with the peg sticking out, like, it just slips all the time. Like, I, I never have to turn it and turn it and turn it. Anyway, I have always played with this kind of fist string tuner, and I love it. Interesting. I think you might be the first person who I've heard, like, speak out in favor of the, the, <laughs> I know, it's so the weird. straight fist it's string. It's such a weird thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. What's like a website that people can go to to check out all these lessons that you have available and uh, whatnot? My, my website is caseyhenry.net. Um, you can also find samples of, of every single lesson that I have on YouTube, my YouTube channel, which is just under Casey Henry. Okay. Um, and then uh, I do have taught several of the uh, Murphy Method uh, branded, um, you know, instructional DVDs, and those are all at murphymethod.com. And that's going back to how old were you when you did the first Murphy Method? <laughs> Uh, well, the first one I taught, the first tune that I taught was Kansas City Railroad Blues. And that was when I was in high school. Let's see, what must have been 17, 18. Mm -hmm. um, 
But the, my first appearance on uh, one of the videos was when my brother and I were in the ukulele video for kids. And that was pre-me playing anything. So I maybe was 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's a real time capsule. Don't we one. all wish that our family videos could be published for anybody to order on the internet? <laughs> Probably not <laughs> at all. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Casey. Great talking to you. You too, Keith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That's going to do it for this interview and this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. You heard some song clips, and in order, they were Leroy and Liza by Casey and Chris and the Two Stringers, Real Women Drive Trucks by Casey Henry, Going Back to Old Virginia by Casey and Chris and the Two Stringers, The Midnight Train by Jim and Jesse McReynolds, and then Red Mary Janes and Purple Creek, both by Casey Henry. Thank you once again to Stephen B. Register Jr. He's today's VIP Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it all for me. I'll see you all next time.